Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. How's it going? My name is Lucas Latour, and I am the new host of the podcast. If you were expecting Ryan Frederick, do not fear. Ryan is still around and may be involved uh, with the podcast from time to time. But right now he's spending more time uh, focusing on his book. And so a little bit about me. Uh, I've been involved in startups since about 2013 when I launched a physical product e-commerce company called Little City Love. And we had over 300 SKUs and products in hundreds of stores. I've been an organizer for Columbus Startup Weekend and hackathons and been very involved in um, that community for a while. Most recently, I was the COO of a company that was on Shark Tank called Gripmat. And now at AWH, I head up our business development efforts along with Ryan and work alongside our product team. So you'll be hearing a lot of my voice and I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much. All right, welcome to the show, Jono Bacon. Um, first off, I just wanted to say you have a very interesting background. You are a speaker, an author, a podcaster. You uh, have a consulting company where you provide strategy and execution workflow and other services for people that are creating communities. You've previously served as the director of community at GitHub, Canonical, XPRIZE, and Open Advantage, and have a long list of clients. And now, you are an author of several books, including most recently, People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business Brand and Teams. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks <laughs> for having me on. What a great intro, by the way. You're a pro. <laughs> well, Total pro. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I lumped off quite a bit because you do you do a number of things. And um, yeah, but thanks. Those things aren't interesting, though. You, you focus on the right bits. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, I'm so happy we connected because I wanted to talk to you about this idea of community, and that's mm. the topic of your most recent book, and also I, I think your your book previous to that as well. And it's just something that keeps popping up in my world. Uh, you know, our company focuses on product development, yeah. and so you start. You've been doing community for a very long time. How did you get started in this world, and when did you realize you wanted to to work on community? I think uh, my path, like so many, um, was weird and windy. You know, I was living at home with my parents. I was about eighteen. I had hair back then, and then it started growing inwards and coming out of my toes when I was about twenty-one. And uh, <laughs> and my my brother Simon came back home to live with us for a couple of weeks. And he introduced me to this um, this operating system called Linux, which back in the late '90s was was a very young kind of unwashed technology that was being developed, and it was fascinating to me because it was essentially it was um, Unix for home computers, and I was a bit of a nerd back then, continued to be a bit of a nerd, and Unix was something that always run on these massive mainframes, so I was very excited about the idea of this really powerful system on my computer. Went and bought a book about. Linux. Uh, there was only one book on the market back then, and I worked in a bookshop. And the first chapter talked about how the system was built by people all over the world. You know, they kind of came together on the internet, and they wrote code, and then they shared the code with each other. And that's how Linux was formed. And I found this fascinating for two reasons. One was that the internet was still, at least in the UK, 
back back in the late 90s was was kind of this burgeoning force you know it was still inaccessible for most people because you know you had to pay 10 pence a minute to get online and that would that was cost prohibitive for a lot of people but the idea of people talking to each other and collaborating online was fascinating but the idea of people building the same thing and then sharing the fruits of that i i just found absolutely fascinating so i read that first chapter and i i found myself be more interested in the community piece than the tech uh, and hmm. the technology was interesting to me and i just thought i need to learn everything about this uh, and down the rabbit hole i went yeah that's that's super fascinating so for people that don't know exactly i mean i think we all have an intuitive sense of what a community is hmm. but do you have any sort of essential, this is what we're talking about when we talk about community, because there's so many different forms of ways people interact with each other. Right. What do you take a community to be? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you, you raise a good point. It means different things to different people, right? The, the, a community to one person is a knitting circle, and to another person, it's a global technology movement, and to someone else, it's a political movement. Fundamentally, a community is basically, it's a bunch of people glued together with a common interest and a common mission. And the reason why communities prosper is because psychologically, we as human beings are A, very social. We like to spend time with other human beings. And B, we are fundamentally motivated by meaningful work, right? So, you know, many of your listeners probably sit in a cube at work and they have to go through their to-do list and they're probably dissatisfied with that. Um, but the the people who are listening right now who go to work and they, they feel like they can influence the company and what they do and how they work together will feel very motivated. So a community is a bunch of people who, who are, who are kind of stuck together. And what they do is they bring different insight and experience and time. And when you, when you're able to unlock all of that brain power and time into a common environment, into a shared space, that's when you get amazing results in a community. So to give you an example, I mean, just talking about Linux just then, you know, you'd have now thousands of developers around the world, each of which has got different interests and problems they want to solve and skills they can bring and time available. And when you essentially all of that gets fed into a, into a machine and the output of that machine is the, is the platform. And community has grown significantly in recent years. You know, Salesforce, SAP have got communities of over a million members. So a Fitbit, Star Citizen raised over $250 million in crowdfunded donations. Harley Davidson have built 1,700 local user groups all over the world. You know, it's really prospering. And one of the reasons why is that a lot of businesses are realizing, first of all, our audiences are getting younger and younger, and they're growing up with social technology. They're growing up in a, in a, in a era of Instagram and Twitter and whatever else, and they expect a relationship with other people and other customers. But secondly, your, your, your customers can generate value for you, right? So, you know, for example, with Fitbit, they've got an incredible community of participants and those that community is not just talking about the Fitbit watches. They're talking about how to swim better, what intermittent fasting is and whether it's right for you. They're talking about how to understand the data. They're going far deeper than the company could ever go. So the community becomes part of the product. So you touched a little bit on how uh, uh, these online platforms and social media have created this expectation of new ways to interact with businesses. Yeah. Do you feel like there are fundamental reasons why people do join these communities online? Because, you know, there's so many things to be a part of it. it, it you can almost hear some business saying, well, it, it, everybody's doing this. Why, why should I why create us? this? Yeah. Why us? Right. And why would somebody even want to join my community? That's such a great question because 
the first questions I get from my clients and company and and various other communities that I work with is like, why should people join and how do I get them through the door? How do I get them in? And um, the way you shouldn't do this is to build a community and think if we build it, they will come because they won't come. Right. The reason why anyone tries anything new as a general rule is because of two things. It's because it either relieves pain that they've got or it adds value to their life that they don't have. Hmm. So let's say, let's say you're a branding company, right? And you've got a platform for building brands. Um, you know, I'd first of all look at like, what is the pain that your, your customers, your users, your partners are experiencing? What sucks about being them? And they may say, well, getting brand reviews is, it takes too long or we don't have we don't have a place to track our brand and, and style and, and voice guides and all these different pieces. We, we're unable to build consistency. Um, our current processes are slow and cumbersome. You can identify all of those painful elements. And then what you do is when you design your community, the very first experiences that your community member should have is content, training, material, value, support that is helping to relieve th those pain points. Hmm. And what will happen is your community will then, your, your, your members will then associate your community as something that helps them to be successful because people really will only go to these communities if they can get some mercenary value out of them in, in the short term. I break it into three, three phases. I talk about this in People Powered. You know, when you join a new community, you're a casual member. You don't really know anyone. You don't know if this is worth your time. Uh, you haven't built the relationships yet. And then once you've been around a community for about two months, and you've got a lot of value out of it in that two month period. It takes two months to build a habit. That's, you know, if you want to quit drinking or if you want to get healthier or exercise more, it takes about two months to kind of rewire your brain and how to do that. So once you, once you have that two month constant, you know, um, consumption of, of content, material support events that are helping to relieve that pain, helping to generate value for you, you then will just associate the community as a good place to be. Hmm. Uh, and that's when you get into the regular phase and then a small number of those people will become what I call core members. But most communities, frankly, will fail. And the reason why is they don't have that value proposition to get people in. So if anyone who's listening to this is thinking about setting up a community, you've got to understand who your audience is, what their pain points are and focus there first, because that's going to increase your chances of success much more significantly. Yeah. And you talked a bit about the importance of onboarding and that initial engagement with the audience. And I myself yeah. have joined many communities online and, you know, let's say there's 10,000 people in there and you get in there and there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of participation. And I guess if you had to sort of diagnose, like, how do you prevent how do you prevent a, a community from turning into just one of these these dead hmm. entities online where people just log in one time and then never log in again? What do you yeah. think the keys are to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mentioned the kind of the casual, the regular and the core, those three phases. Um, I'm going to go about this answer a little bit backside first, hmm. but that, you know, the way which we move people from the, the casual to the uh, sorry, from the casual to the regular to the core, is we do it through incentives. We we give them things to do. We give them activity to focus on. And the activity that you need to focus on in those three different phases is different, right? So when someone's casual, when they're brand new in a community, you want to make them feel comfortable, safe. You want to 
increase how they get to know other people and you want to make them feel comfortable in talking and sharing in, in your community setting. So a lot of that's about mentoring and kind of getting people out of their shells. Think about it this way. You know, we know, remember before we had COVID-19 <laughs> and uh, you'd, have a, you'd have a party, right? And you, and you invite a bunch of people over to your house. The first half an hour of your party when the early people show up you know, you'll typically try to get some conversation going with one couple and then with another couple, and then you'll try to glue them together so they can then talk to each other. And then you can go and talk to someone else and get them talking. And it's a little bit like lighting a fire mm. before you know it, it'll catch on and then you're off, off to the races. And that's what's really important in those early phases. But I think what you touched on, is, which is critical, is the onboarding piece. A mm. lot of companies, especially who build communities, they hire a community manager. And a lot of community managers are naturally very comfortable with the outreach stuff like they mm. like blogging doing events webinars social media uh, all of that kind of stuff which is all growth but if you so you you know you do a whole bunch of effectively in marketing terms lead generation you bring people in but if it's not simple for them to get to that first piece of value that i mentioned earlier on you know if you identify let's say here's a pain point that everyone in our target audience suffers from let's give them this first if you can't make it easy for them to get that and then come into the community and start that mentoring process, they just won't join. They just won't come in. Mm. So I think it's it's important that we're intentional about it because just the best journeys in the world are intentional. Like if you think about it, going to Disney World, you know, they from how you park your car to how you buy your tickets to how you go around the park, they figured out every step of that journey. Like you're, you're in a machine, you're in a, you're kind of in a funnel when you go to mm. Disney. It's the same thing with a great restaurant or a video game. Everything is intentionally laid out. And that's why I think we need to do that in communities. Again, if you just do the whole, if we build it, if you just chuck up a forum or a Slack channel, yeah, you may get a couple of people, but you won't get the kind of growth that you want unless you're intentional. Yeah. So when you think about this uh, from a business standpoint, you know, how much time and dedication do you do you have to put in to, to really build a good community? I mean, you talked mm. about just hiring a community manager and throwing some stuff you know, at it and saying, okay, here's a Slack group. Uh, is this, you know, does this become a significant portion of your, of your time as a, like a business owner? Well, the good news here is that uh, communities can kind of be as long as, of a, as long as a piece of string. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, for example, when I'm, when I'm working with clients, one of the first things I always ask is like, what are your broader business goals? Mm -hmm. Um, and who are your target audiences? And then how can we design a community that's going to be complementary to delivering those business goals and that's going to serve those audiences? So if one of your business goals, for example, is we want broader brand recognition, then I'd be thinking along the lines of a lot of content development and building a community where your community members will ultimately start creating content for you. You know, for many communities, the goal is to provide a place to provide support for their customers. And they will also want to lower their actual formal support costs. So you kind of identify those pieces first. But then the good news is that you can then apply the level of investment in community in a variable way, depending on how much you want to, you know, resource it. So, you know, I've got a client right now, for example, hmm. and they've got most of one person's time on this, you know, kind of three quarters of that person's time, they're in the marketing team. And we're designing a community that that will max them out in terms of that availability, but it's not going to overwhelm them. And we're designing it very specifically that way. But I've worked with other clients, one, for example, in Asia, where they hired 10 community managers, hmm. um, they had a massive, massive investment in community. So you can really tune it as you see fit. The hmm. key thing I think is, 
is that we focus as much as possible on on automation where it makes sense, right? So without mm. delving too deeply into the nerdery, a lot of <laughs> marketing professionals, for example, they'll set up automated email chains and things like that. Mm. Um, and I think that there's a lot of value in, in automation. The, the, the critical thing with communities is you cannot have a computer pretend to be a human being. Mm. Um, if you If you do that, it will kill trust. So we've got to apply automation to maximize that person's time but we've always got to make sure that that time that person's got time to kind of go in and build those relationships and kind of again get that fire going. Yeah, you you sort of talked about some of the the risks of of doing that. The automation it sounds like impersonal kind of communication that yeah. pretends to be personal can be a big red flag in a community. What are some of the other ways you think communities go wrong or become toxic? Yeah, I mean, I think one is that there's just there there isn't good leadership. You know, one psychological pattern that that's that is very common with human beings is that we mimic our leaders. Mm. Um, you know, so if you've got a you know a despotic a hole um, mm -hmm. who's running a company, for example, it's not uncommon for that person's immediate executive team to emulate those kinds of behavioral patterns because they feel like that's how you get along, and then of course that trickles down the ranks. But then if you have a really kind, collaborative, empathetic leader, you get the, that kind of behavior. So it's really important that when you, when you have a community, you have, good, you have good leadership in place. And invariably, as your community grows, you'll probably need to put in place some moderators and that you train them effectively in, in that. So I think that's going to be that's one element. I think the major mistake that most communities fail on is they don't have a regular drumbeat of engaging discussion, material, and content. Mm. You know, so I'll give you an example. A friend of mine is running a community. I, I'm not going to say who it is. Uh, <laughs> no worries. But, you, you know, he's basically building a community around a training platform that he's built around music. And, mm. you know, he asked me to kind of come in and help get his, his community jump started. So what we did is went in there. We first of all kind of did what I call an early adopter initiative where we bring in like 20 people who are his early customers, uh, get them up and running, get them comfortable in the platform, you know, get some feedback from them so they can provide suggestions on how to improve the community so they feel like they can shape the community. Then we kicked the doors open, brought some more people in, and we had this regular drumbeat of kind of discussions that we were kicking off, new ideas, content, how-tos, all of this kind of stuff. And we saw the figures just gradually growing and growing and growing, like more people signing up, more people reading. There's a, a, a metric called DAUMAU where you take the number of daily active users in your forum, for example, people who are kind of posting and liking, interacting in some way, and you divide it by the number of monthly active users, gives you kind of a percentage stickiness. That's that's a critical number. You want to try and keep that over 30%. That's how many people are actively engaged within your group. So everything was going great. I then went on vacation for a couple of weeks, mm. and he was busy with the other bits of his business, and he doesn't have a community management place. So consequently, the content, the discussion starters dried up. And then we saw a visible dip in the, in, in the analytics. So the biggest, one of the biggest challenges is you've got to keep that stuff going. And that's why like an editorial calendar and, and having a drumbeat of content is really, really important. And the tricky thing here is everybody thinks they can do that. Everyone thinks, oh, I've set up a blog. I'll make sure I post at least one blog post a week. And then five weeks go past and there's nothing. And the reason why is we get busy by other stuff. So we've got to have systematic calendars and 
deadlines that we have to stick to to keep that drumbeat going. Because eventually what will happen is the community will have built that habit. They'll just be showing up every day and they'll be generating a lot of the content. They'll be generating a lot of the discussion and you can take the foot off the gas a little bit. But that's generally what we, that's a huge risk that people face. Gotcha. Is there sort of a right time to create a community? I mean, uh, like I've seen companies that as soon as they start, they have a community and they're using it to sort of inform their product development stage and Mm. which, I mean, product development's ongoing thing, but um, is, do you find, is there any wisdom around like, when is the right time to do this? Does it, does it matter at all? As long as you're dedicated to it? I mean, I think the good news is that from the community perspective is you can really do it at any time. Um, Mm. I think there is though in the size of the company can have a huge impact, right? So for example, I've worked with tiny startups, you know, you've got a team of three, five, 10 people and they're kind of jumpstarting their community. And the good news there is, is that whatever workflow, whatever process they put in place around their community, they can very easily integrate it into the business, right? So, uh, you know, one risk that a lot of companies face here is that they go out and hire a community manager. They bring them in. That community manager does what community managers do. They blog, they do social media, they go to events, they do all this kind of stuff. They set up forums. And then a year later, the company's not happy with their progress because the execution of the community manager isn't aligned with what the executive team wants to see. That's one risk. And then the other risk is that the executives in the company don't make it clear that everybody should be engaged with the community. So what happens is people think, oh, Sarah's our community manager. She'll take care of the community. I can safely go back to my hmm. my cube and, and do my work. So the good news is that in building that kind of message that the community is important, it's part of what we do. I mean, you know, we're expecting everybody to have a relationship with our community members. It's easier to set that, set that expectation in a small startup than, for example, in a large bank. So that's one of the major benefits. So I think if you're a smaller company, it's easy to spin it up. But, you know, you can do it in larger companies, but you need to then be very intentional about kind of like organizational collaboration and and input. The one thing you should never do is build a community plan in a vacuum. You Mm. know, so a community manager builds their plan, they start executing on it. Especially in a large company, that won't work. You're going to have to make sure that the marketing team, the engineering team, the product team feel like they've got their fingerprints in the plan because then they're more likely to actually participate in executing it. Gotcha. From a product development standpoint, um, a lot of times we're we're talking to users, we're getting user feedback to inform uh, our product development. Have you seen any good examples of of companies that are really working with their users from a community standpoint? Uh, and like, how do they set it up? Do you mean in terms of like just kind of good examples of community members feeding into the product? Yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, this varies significantly. I mean, the, 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 the classic example here, but I'm, I think it may not be a great example because it, it's fairly niche is, is the open source world. Mm. Um, uh, because you get these projects like Kubernetes is a good example, which is a, cloud infrastructure tool that Google created and they built a whole community around it. So people can kind of go in and they can feed into the roadmap and they can feed into, you know, what bugs are there and, and how they can resolve them. And they can actually write software and code that will that will go into the project. And the open source world, which now frankly is running technology. I mean the vast majority of infrastructure is powered by open source. It's it's huge. And one of the reasons for that is because of this inherent community collaborative infrastructure. So 
I think that's a, a good example. But outside of that, usually what happens is most companies will have, you know, you can kind of go and submit your feature requests and it kind of goes into a black hole. You don't know whether it's actually going to be going in there. Some companies will then, you know, for example, they'll they'll post their roadmap and what they're planning. But I think a lot of this really depends on the maturity of the product team and how systematized they're incorporating the community into, into the process. And frankly, if I'm being honest with you, very few product teams do it in a way that I personally would like to see them do it. Um, yeah. Why, know, do you, why do you think that is? Well, I, I, I think that the challenges that most product managers, for example, that I've ever worked with are just, they're just riding by the seat of their pants, right? Their, their pants are on fire. They've got, <laughs> yeah. they're just getting a t-shirt gun has been filled with feature requests from their partners, their <laughs> customers and elsewhere, like reviewers on the internet. And they're just having to figure out how to deal with all of that kind of stuff. And m- what worries me is that there's that then people build out product features that, um, that serve a, a relatively niche part of the audience and they don't ultimately move the product forward with the target audience. The The method that I'm a big fan of, there's a guy called Rahul Vora, who is the CEO of a company called Superhuman, and they built mm. an email product. And it's, um, I'll be honest with you, when I first heard about it, I met him at a conference, and he was going on about this this email thing that he built. And I was like, okay, what's wrong with Gmail? <laughs> <laughs> and it's $30 a month. It's it's a premium product and it's it's brilliant i love it i use it every single day but what's interesting is they they developed this um what they call their product market fit engine and essentially what they did is they did a sent a survey out to all of their users and they asked would you be very disappointed somewhat disappointed or not disappointed at all if our if superhuman went away and they asked some other questions like what are your favorite features what are the things that are missing you know what role have you got so what they did is they looked at the people who would be very disappointed if superhuman went away and they looked at what role they have and they determined it's like executives and you know senior leaders all this kind of stuff so that gave them a sense of who their target audience is and then they looked also at what are the features that you love most and they talked about speed and you know how attachments are handled and all this all this kind of stuff so that gave them a sense of what they should be marketing and which audience they market towards. But then they took the middle segment, the somewhat disappointed if it went away, right? They didn't look at the people who wouldn't be disappointed at all if it went away, because those people are effectively a lost cause. It's the people who are kind of on the fence about the value of superhuman. And they said, they looked at the, the question, what are the things that are missing that would make you love superhuman? And it was things like, it doesn't have a good mobile app. And it gave them a real sense of targeted product development because then at, what, at that point they're being data driven in terms of if not the specific features the spe- the kind of areas that their product needs to focus on rahul wrote this up in a in a article on first round and i definitely recommend anyone who's listened to this to go and check that out because i think a lot of companies are going to adopt this approach but in my mind you send that survey out to your community members you don't just send it out to a small subset of your paid customers you send it out to everybody who's using your product and i think that will shape the journey and then if you can then have a more engaging process in which people can fit feed into those different target portions so let's say you say okay i want to you know let's say we do the survey and we identify that the mobile app is an area that's missing in terms of the the people will be somewhat disappointed if if the, if your product went away. I then kick off a community process and say, let's learn more about like 
our, our mobile app? Like, where is it? Where are its strengths? Where are its weaknesses? Like, what would people like to see in it? How do you use it? What are the use cases? How do you use it compared to the desktop client? At that point, you're incorporating the, the community in the process, but it's within a very, very structured way of defining those areas. So you segment your types of communities into into three different segments, right? There's the, right. and I'm, I feel like I'm going to butcher this, but you the have, casual, the regular, and the core. Yeah. So there, do you feel like that maps on pretty well to that concept where it, you're really talking to your core users in your community when you're talking to the people that would be very disappointed if your product goes away? Um, I don't think it really maps, if I'm being honest with you, because the the casual, the regular, and the core are more for the that's more about engagement in the community itself. I think within each of those three different segments, you will have people who will be very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, not disappointed at all if your product went away. You know, I mean, well, I think that you're more likely to have in the in the core people would be very disappointed if your product went away because by definition, they're spending a lot of time in the community. So they're probably a lot more enthusiastic about your product. And I suspect in the regular phase, you're going to have people who will be very disappointed if your product went away and somewhat disappointed. But in the casual, it's going to be all over the place. But, you know, you have many, 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 many companies will have a huge number of very, very deeply passionate users and customers who will very casually spend time in their communities. So I don't think it really maps maps significantly. I would look at the methodology I just went through, the, the one that Superhuman uses, the product workflow. I think what's critical then is that when you tie it into your community, I will be targeting your regulars and your core members to kind of feed into that product process. If you go through the Superhuman workflow and you identify, okay, we've got five areas where our customers who are will be, you know, somewhat disappointed if we went away that where they that would clinch the you know us for them these are the five areas i would think of those as themes for discussion for content for outreach and engagement in the community to support the product team the engineering team in understanding the nuances of of what that should look like gotcha so do you think there is a certain kind of community that is a better fit for a business like well, business goes after straight up like a consumer model or um, a champion model um, right. or a collaborator model. How do, how do you think about deciding between those options when you're creating a community? I'm very impressed that you reference those models. <laughs> <laughs> I read the book. So just, I am very, love it. Love it. You're that guy who read the book. Uh, <laughs> so uh, just for the, for the benefit of your listeners, um, the, 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 cons- the, these kind of three models, the consumer model is people who just kind of get together to hang out. They're fans of something. They're fans of Taylor Swift or Cardi B or whatever it might be. Uh, and they just they just talk with their tribe uh, is what a consumer community is. A champion community is where people go a little bit of a step further. They, they create content. They provide support. Um, they organize events. And then a collaborator model is where you work together on the same thing. Um, and that's like technology communities like open source. You know, earlier on I mentioned when I work with um, with clients, I'll ask them what their business goals are, and it's from that that I'll 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 start thinking about which of these models we should choose. The model that is very much the most popular that I've ever seen is the champion model, and that's typically the vast majority of companies that I ever work with. What they want is they want to build a place where they can get their their customers and users together, 
and they can, first of all, they can ask questions and get help from other users. Uh, some companies are explicit in that it's about case deflection. They want to reduce the formal support costs, you know, that, that the support team is focusing on. But for most, it's more, we just want to build a relationship with our customers and users. We want to give them great information. We want to have, bring them together to get support. And then typically there'll also be other areas such as, you know, we want to, we want to bring them into webinars and get them into training sessions and all these different elements. That's by far the most, the most popular te- uh, you know need for it but communities really can be malified and kind of twisted and contorted into a variety of different use cases you know for example a client that i just wrapped up with we just built a community of executives um, who are just this is all about kind of decision making and sharing insight about what it's like to run a company and we actually do that all over email because executives are not going to go and hang out in a forum they're not going to necessarily even go to a slack channel but they they do read and send a lot of email. So the, the community really does need to be tightly tied to to the target audience mm. and what your intended use case is. Yeah, that's pretty interesting too because there's so many different quote-unquote platforms like you have Slack, Circle, yep. you could put it, you know, you could organize meetups. Um, there's yep. so many different ways this could manifest itself. So how how do you really decide which platform is right for you or some combination of them yeah i mean it's a great question it's and it's it's sadly got a a pretty big answer i'll try to be as brief as possible (laughs) no worries Um, (laughs) the way i look at it is there's two types of communication in the world you've got structured and unstructured so structured is where you have a very specific conversation about a very specific outcome so for example a q a website such as stack overflow um, or you know a q a website for your for, for a particular company, you go and ask the question, someone provides an answer, and that's the extent of the discussion. You don't talk about your kids and how your weekend was in those kinds of discussions. That's structured communication. The unstructured communication is kind of general chit-chat, and that's forums, Slack channels, all of those different pieces. Most communities will need a combination of both. Um, so, for example, a tech community will have GitHub, and they'll have GitHub issues and pull requests, which is just structured com- communication. But you always need like a community clubhouse for, pe- for people to spend time in. And that's where you, most of your community will, will form. So within unstructured communication, it subdivides into short-term and long-term memory platforms. Now, a short-term memory platform is something like Slack or Mattermost or Discord or Gitter or any of those real-time chat channels. The benefit of those is that they're really engaging. They're simple for people to join and have conversations. They're very gratifying because you're talking to an actual human being live, but they just do not scale. And they don't scale for two reasons. One is that once you get over a certain number of users in there, it's a complete stream of consciousness. It's very difficult to engage in conversation and to organize that conversation. It's organized usually by channels. And it just doesn't work very well when you get a lot of people in. If you've got 20 people in there, it's great. 100 people, that's great. But if you get to 5,000 people, it just becomes a stream of consciousness. Mm. Uh, the other problem with with these platforms, and the reason why I call them short-term memory, is that there's no history. Slack keeps saying that you can go and search and find previous discussions. They're lying. It doesn't work. It mm. never has worked. It never will work because it's a stream of consciousness. You can't go and dig into that specific part of the, you know, line-by-line discussion and find what you're looking for. And part of the reason is people are very loose. People write in a very loose and informal way on Slack compared to a forum or an email. 
So it's good for instant messaging and communication, but beyond that, real-time chat channels are just not great for building communities. Now compare that to a long-term memory platform like a forum. Um, it could be a discourse, vanilla, chorus. It could even be a Facebook group. The benefit of these systems is, is people are they have conversations and they, they're organized logically into topics. Uh, so you have a topic and then you have a bunch of, of, of messages within that topic. And that means that when you search within the platform, you're able to find previous discussions much more easily. They're better organized. And usually people are a little bit more formal in, in the way in which they kind of share their insight and their expertise. You know, in, on Slack, there's a lot of, yeah, cool. And hmm, yeah, me too. Oh, that's great. And all that kind of like, you know, interstitial kind of discussion that tends to happen there. The other benefit of forums is that, especially ones that are public, is that the place where everybody goes to get their questions answered now, it's not books, it's not social media, it's not frequently asked questions lists. They go to Google and they type in their question. So ideally, you want to engineer a situation where someone types a question into Google and then that conversation has happened on your forum it's been indexed on Google because it's got good search engine optimization, and then that leads people into your community. Uh, you don't have any of that with Slack or Mattermost or Discord. You don't have any of that with Facebook groups. So when you focus on platforms like Discourse or Vanilla or Chorus, you get that public indexing, and that brings people in. Mm. So that's I generally tend to orientate towards forums. The problem with forums is they're just a lot less gratifying than chat channels. You know, they, and they require a bit more work to kind of get up and running. But I think it's a longer term investment. And it sounds like those are a better fit if you are really considering scale, things like scale and SEO and exactly, uh, yeah. You can, you can scale a forum to millions of users. You cannot scale a chat channel. So I tend to think of Slack, much as it's a great platform. Slack is a it's a convenience drug for communities. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas I think if you're building a community and you're serious about it. You need to be looking at the long term. And, and that's where I think Slack is. I often will frankly recommend people have a forum and they have Slack. But Slack is more for kind of team members to chit chat with each other, whereas the forum is where your community primarily spends their time. Do you find that forums have the same level of personal, like one-to-one -one interaction as, as like, say, a Slack? Or how do you, how do you create personalized like connections right. in, in, in a forum. Yeah. I mean, what you don't get in forums and I think what you're touching on, which I think is a really, you know, um, it's really observant is, is that in Slack, you can often, for example, have a chat with someone and then it's very easy for it to just digress into, you know, your favorite music and movies. And did you see this? And did you see that? And how's your family doing? Are you safe in the California wildfires? <laughs> All those kinds of things. You don't get that in forums as much. I think what forums are great at doing is is organizing, distilling information and building reputations. You know, mm. people will look at people who they regularly see in forums and think, "Wow, that person knows what they're doing." It's a great it's a great way for, great place for building communities. In terms of building those personal connections, that's what I think doing that out of band, out of band is really important. It, it is missing in doing it in a, in, in a forum, and that's why I think getting people together on you know, at events, at virtual events, um, people chit-chatting on Slack, that kind of stuff is, is really valuable. So, you know, for example, what I'll often say to people is, have your Slack channel there as a place where people can go and hang out if they want to. But you, you generally say, like, the community discussion is we're going we're gonna to focus that in being in the forum, okay? Mm -hmm. What you don't want to do is, is replace the forum with Slack because then you lose the scaling benefits. 
So you touched on virtual events, and I, I'm just curious in your world, since we've had the rapid changes that we've had over the last several months with coronavirus, mm-hmm. have you seen this this world exploding and, and, and more and more people getting into this now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, no doubt. I think what's interesting is coronavirus, two things have happened outside of the medical side, obviously, but within communities. One is that it really forced a lot of people who were kind of um and anaring about about remote working and technology. It forced them into that box. They had to react and get their teams working together online. And I think what that's done is that's first of all shown them that even though it was terrifying to pull those people together, it does work. And I think they're now thinking, oh well. This is interesting. Maybe we should focus on building like an internal community and teams and all the rest of it. So there's been a a renewed level of appetite around that. But the other thing is that because a lot of the events have moved to online, community and event nerds have really gone into this kind of period of experimentation and exploration and seeing what works. And I mean, I've spoken at, God, since coronavirus kicked off, I must have spoken at 20 events. And wow. And, you know, there's just a ton of them going on. And if I'm being honest with you, most of them are very much the same. They're just, it's a grouped collection of webinars. And I, I think we're going to continue to learn that, that that's not going to work, right? Mm. Um, so, but I think people are experimenting. They're experimenting with breakout rooms and uh, what kind of content and what kind of schedule you operate on. So I think we're, we're seeing this really interesting, intensive level of experimentation that will continue post-coronavirus. Mm. But there's no doubt been um, a, a real ex- elevated level of excitement. I think also there is there are companies are realizing this online piece is a powerful um, is a powerful differentiator, uh, and I think I'm certainly seeing more and more companies are exploring. They're dipping their toes in the idea of building communities because they've seen it work since their teams have been remotely working. So they're thinking, oh, what can we do with our community uh, with our customers now? Yeah, and I think um, just to sort of wrap this up, um, for companies that are looking to do that, what are you up to now? How can people find you and work with you? Is there any sort of elevator pitch you would like to give to the audience? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So, you know, it's always weird when people ask me this because I'm a consultant, right? And most people, I think, have a healthy distrust of consultants. Um, <laughs> which, because they're the kind of people where you have to ask questions on the back of a check, you know, and it's, uh, I'm not that guy. Um, you know, I think probably the, the place I would recommend is if you're new to communities, you're interested in this. I think buying my book, People Powered is a good place to start because it kind of distills everything in one place. One thing that might be interesting to your audience is I, um, I, I have a page on my website. If you go to johnobacon.com, johnobacon.com forward slash pack. I actually provide a couple of free chapters, you know, in PDF and audiobook form. I, um, you know, read the book myself and, but I also send out templates and best practices and all kinds of stuff. I send a lot of kind of best practice content to people who sign up on my website. Um, I don't really sell people very often on anything because to me, this is about just getting the information, the ideas, the approaches, the support out there to people. And I recommend people start there. I mean, obviously, if people are interested in building a community, that's what I help people help companies do, then you can reach out to me. But, you know, for me, the most critical thing is just 
people being able to safely dip their toes in this and understand it and have some support. And that's the kind of the content that I like to put out there. Wow, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was super fascinating. And I feel like we just scratched the surface of community. And uh, I highly recommend once again, check out People Powered, Jono's book. It's, it's very easy to read and very insightful, a lot of great information. But until now, we will talk to you all next time. Thank you very much. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at awhnet to learn more.